things with spices and other things earlier have you ever read any of doc smith yeah oh god long time ago the, the skylark series where that one mm. pound of salt that they've got on there turns out to be the ultimate um trading tool they want it right. for food, uh, on the planet and the planet wants to use it as a catalyst for making armor yeah there's um actually that was an inspiration to me in, in the gopher the myth which is coming out um there's a, uh, a race of people that have never in their lives had deep fried tubers, potato chips. They'd never had that. And this ship crash landed there and they, all it was carrying was potato chips. That was a food chip. And they discovered that and they immediately opened up trade with its home world. And they began, all the diplomatic relations revolved around potato chips. And um, it was kind of going along the same line because something that they didn't think was valuable at all turned out to be the way to open up complete negotiation, avoid a war, and make new friends with an alien race and uh, base it on deep how many times? How many times in Earth history has that actually happened where food turned out to be a, a key factor in negotiations between two peoples? I think that's happened. But, yeah, it's, it's happened. Just not enough, unfortunately. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I wish we could get everybody to sit down and have a nice barbecue and quit fighting with each other, but it, it hasn't really happened that way. There was, um, uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, he was a Roman general, uh, 900 BC or AD. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Um, anyway, he was, he, was, uh, he was in northern India, and rather than get into a big fight with the Gopri of the Deccan at that time, they ended up setting up a peace treaty based on the foods. And they trans Indian foods would come into the Roman army, which is Constantinople anyway at that time, not really Rome. And, uh, you know, I wish I could remember this guy's name. It's cool. Whatever. Uh, Pelosaurus. Pelosaurus. Thank you. And uh, But the, he did a deal with the Gopi of the Deccan based on trading food, which stopped what would have been a Sino-Indian war. It would have ravaged half the top half of the country. Top half of the continent. Excuse me. Um, so, yeah. So that one I know. Um, and I'm glad I remember his name. He serves that much. Uh, but there's I can't think of that many instances throughout history. I know wars were started at dinner when we shot somebody while they were eating. But... Uh, Trying to think of peace through peace through food. I wish there was, but I can't. I can't think of any. If I'm if I'm wrong, someone. There have been a lot of cases that I know of where food was part of it, but it was never part of the negotiation, other than the big feast, mm -hmm. um, bringing chocolate back or tobacco back to um, Europe, um, the Kobe cows on shipping. Um, mm -hmm. The British Empire, for better or worse, has brought a number of things out to the world. Um, Bass Al and other things that they had to bring out everywhere and kind of share with all of their bases elsewhere. Um, so the, the food has been out there, but it's not always a positive negotiation tool. Yeah. The most amusing case I can think of is from the original DuckTales, where Scrooge McDuck actually ends up trading peanut butter for this really expensive artifact or whatever, because the tribal chief wants something that'll make him fatter and peanut butter is perfect for that works for me it, it's very weird um i mean i know that there were a couple of cases where literally cases of whiskey or other things were used as part of the trade deals 
Mm -hmm. Especially into the States. Um, how the heck that turned into bourbon, I don't even want to think about. Um, <laughs> um, sorry, I personally find bourbon a little too sweet. Um, but yeah, food is all interesting places. Um, in my book, the weirdest thing I came up with was a meal of uh, sin duck empanadas served with white kimchi. And the white mm. kimchi is not like the regular kimchi because it's a much milder, uh, flavorful way. It doesn't bite as much. It also doesn't oh, work in the backyard as that much. That sounds boring. <laughs> I like kimchi the way it is. <laughs> uh, it's a legitimate alternate flavor, and it doesn't explode in your backyard nearly as much. Yeah, that was the thing the first time I had. When I had kimchi in Korea, the lady went and dug up the, the pot with it in it and brought out to it. It's like six months. We're ready now. We can eat this. I'm like, cool. Well, I'm here. They've got booze. I may as well eat the food. It didn't kill yeah. them. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of kimchi, but it's just the flavor just doesn't. It's not yeah, my it's, thing. Um, then again, I've eaten enough hand. weird stuff to be able to say, eh, I mean, I, I've even, I have eaten anything and everything from, I've had monkey, which is greasy as hell. Um, I've had uh, what camel, horse, you name it. I've probably had it. Um, and it, that's just from, uh, you know, uh, as with Bill, wandering the world, uh, so to speak. Um, I, well, you got a cool, you got a cool uniform. I had to carry a guitar. So, you know, I'm not sure. Well, <laughs> I don't Did know. You have to wear a dog ball. What's that? To wear a dog ball. No, I didn't have to wear the dog ball when I uh, uh, earned my golden shell back. Uh, I was oh. a. Uh, Haltech, uh, which is plumber, welder, uh, pipe fitter, etc. So I got to wear a toilet seat. Uh, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. Now, the weirdest thing I've actually heard of that's actually served on this planet, and I seem to recall it came from part of the Philippines, but I'm not 100% sure, is a chicken egg that have been fertilized and had been allowed to grow for like Balut, the duck egg. Balut, yeah, I tried Balut. it. And it's one of those. I almost that. tried that. I got almost to my mouth disgusting. when I made the mistake of looking down. It looked back at me, and I put it back down. <laughs> it, it sounds horrible. I understand it's really tasty if you can not look at it. That's but, what I was told, but I made the mistake of looking. <laughs> so I, I contemplated putting that into one of those stories using three D printing. I just. <laughs> Decided, no, I wasn't really going to freak out the readers that much. <laughs> I don't know. When I, when I was in Australia, we were just outside of Sydney, and uh, we were hanging out with a couple of the native aborigines. And um, the thing they wanted us to all to try was pulling a slug off the tree and eating it raw. They said, it's delicious. It tastes like honey. And um, while that sounds like a horrible prank to play on tourists, it actually turns out that it's delicious and tastes like honey. You just have to get used to it wiggling in your mouth while you're swallowing it. Kind of an unusual sensation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as, uh, <laughs> as, far as fiction is concerned, though, I, I do like to include food for the reasons that we've all discussed. It, it helps ground the reader a little bit in the story. It gives them something to relate to. Even if the food is weird or unusual, they can cue, if you've got the relaxations of the character, 
um, who's coming across this unusual food stuff, um, the reader can kind of attach themselves to that and react, say, yeah, that's, I, I can identify with the, that reaction, of course. That's well, what you want out of your reader. Exactly. I, I think that uh, I think that food is just a process that's it's common in everyone's life. If you write a story and there's no food in it, um, you've let out a huge part of anyone's life. I mean, people got to stop and eat at some point. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking about in uh, another world, uh, a, a far distant future. And you've included things like what what are their weapons like, what are their cars like, what are their houses like, but you forgot the food. You've you dropped an important part of the world building. It seems to me. Well, oh, yeah. it tells a lot about the cultures. Um, going back to um, Heinlein's um, Citizen of the Galaxy, where he's going through as a free trader, and they're going, and he has to go and have a meal with the, the queen of the village or whatever and their daughter, uh, because it's all matriarchal. So he has to be, a, even though it's a boy, he has to be the daughter for the occasion, uh, for politics reasons. And they have to have a meal symbolically, whereas other things, it's you're not allowed to be seen eating um, except by your, your personal mate and children. And it's like different cultures, different ways, kind of gives you an option of differentiating or improving uh, the reality or the depth of the story. It's no longer three-dimensional cardboard alien. It's, okay, they've got food cultures. They've got rituals. Um, The weirdest one I can recall was the story Venus on the Half Shell, which is going back quite a bit. And um, the traveler goes to visit this beautiful woman, and they're having um, pork for dinner. And some days the pork is very smoky, and some days the pork isn't, uh, depending on who it was that they were um, having for meal. (laughs) (laughs) I yeah (laughs) yummy which which goes all the way back to um jonathan swift stories a modest proposal right jonathan swift oh my gosh you read those (laughs) i reference them frequently gulliver's travel a modest proposal um are truly serious piece of commentary that make really good inspiration for how to write other things. Yeah, I always liked Swift. Um, it, it's just what you're, it, you're right. It's, it's one of those things that sticks in the back of your brain on how to say something about something else. Yes. You don't, have, you don't have to say, this sucks. You can come at it a slightly different way and make a, I think, make a deeper and stronger point. Um, and actually, Swift is, um, without tooting the horn too loudly here, the Brittle Riders is, to me, based on Swift because I use all the alien cultures, like his Lilliputians and everything else, I use the different aliens that are on Earth to satirize and to satirize and to show off different elements of modern society by separating them out. These people are all into money; they're kind of libertarians, you know. The conservative, they're over here. These people are very agrarian and they're very, you know, peace-loving and they're like a hippie commune. And these people are, and so on and so forth, through the, through the world. And um, I, because I get to pull the world apart and pull all the societies apart. I can just look at stuff a little deeper. And like Swift, you say, this is my comment on that. You can, get, you can, make, a, you can make a gentler leap and still make a deeper point. So yeah, uh, I'm with you on Swift. So cool. Yeah, I, you got one thing, I, I you got one thing uh, in common. <laughs> is Big Endian, Little Endian, uh, which later became the Star Trek, maybe this be their last battlefield of the black and white, white and black mm-hmm. guys. Um, mm-hmm. oh, 
So, yes, from Iran, yes. So it leads to all sorts of interesting ways that you can politely smack somebody in the face with what's wrong with the modern society or the world we live in uh, by putting it in a situation that isn't obviously today. And this is, sometimes it's food, sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's whatever you use is what makes science fiction more than just nonsense stories. It's actual political commentary hidden behind nonsense stories. Right. It can certainly be. It can yeah. certainly be. So. If, if, people, if a writer hasn't offered some sort of social or political commentary in the story, uh, you know, I, I may have enjoyed the story otherwise, but I, but I, I kind of expect someone in science fiction to, to have a little point to make. Yeah, have a position on something. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I recently uh, finished a short story uh, where one of the characters is from an agrarian planet where they do everything in the old way. So when they, when they cook a steak dinner, they actually go out to the field, butcher the cow, and collect the leaves for the salad and the tomatoes. They, they actually do everything by hand. And one of the other characters thinks this is incredibly weird because he's eaten everything from a food printer all his life. Yeah, synthesized. Yes. And, and uh, so he, he gets stuck in the position where he actually has to butcher the cow himself, where he actually has to slice up the, his steak. And he's, just, he's absolutely horrified at the notion of this. And and it's my little jab at our current comment or current society where we think a hamburger is this thing of stuff, pink stuff in a tray. We think that's what a hamburger is. That's where it comes from. No, that was a cow named Rebecca. You know. <laughs> oh, give them time. They're still trying to grow those burgers for you. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, can, but, uh, I I completely identify with that. I worked. Uh, Lived and worked on my uncle's uh, farm in uh, in northwestern Oregon for a year and a half. Um, I slopped the pigs. I learned how to uh, take out a chicken um, for dinner. Yep. Um, Did you learn was... how to check the chicken eggs? What's that? How to check the chicken eggs? Oh yeah. Hold oh, yeah. it up to the light to see whether or not there's a dot in it or not. Yeah. You can eat it. Dot. You put it over in the to raise for uh, next month's food? Yeah. Right. Yep. When I was, uh, when yeah, I was a kid, the, I had an uncle in Wisconsin I grew up with. People say, people say, oh, it's, you know, you know what? A fresh egg where you've gone into the, the coop, you've gra- grabbed a couple of eggs, you come out, you crack them, you wash them off, crack them directly into a pan. It is something different. It is, okay. just is. I'll leave that. Yeah. Fresh butchered, yeah, fresh butchered chicken. I think is one of the greatest flavors in the world. Needs almost no spices on it at all. You're um, right. It, you know, it, it, on the other hand, it tastes I, like chicken to yeah. par a joke, but at the same time, it it is different. It really is. And uh, we we also did butcher one of the cows. Um, yeah. Now that was a little bit harder. Was, <laughs> <laughs> Takes some arm not, strength. Well, not not so much that it's uh, you know we took it to, down to the you know the butcher and they t- actually did that, but you know I was there, I was involved, and I'm like wow, it kind of hits a little bit home home a little harder 
um, than people realize because they're so used to, so many people are so used to walking into the store and just grabbing the pack of ground meat uh, and going on with their lives. They just don't comprehend, you know, quite as well. And I, I do, while I take great joy in uh, the idea of finding a uh, vegan uh, group, you know, one of the insufferable vegan groups, having a uh, picnic somewhere and then showing up uh, for a nice big barbecue and playing things <laughs> like uh, carrot juice is murder on the speakers. <laughs> we are. Um, they, they at, the time, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. at the same time, I can absolutely understand why some people have that moral response to meat there, there used to be a program here in chicago for teenagers that uh it got killed when rom became there um but uh it would, the program was basically pretty simple kids would go for a week summer week and they would go to a farm and one of the things they do they'd have to help butcher a chicken they have to pluck a chicken you know they wouldn't give them the knives or anything because they're kids they've never worked with this stuff at all it's not like they hit their wallet but you know someone would kill the chicken and the kids would have to pluck it they, they went and saw how a cow was butchered and they saw all of the aspects of where food really comes from. And then they came back. And you'd be surprised how many of them went on to, to get culinary degrees and get into the cooking industry and become chefs and cooks and work like that. Because like, they understood it now. And as opposed to being appalled by it, which is, I think, what they originally planned was for it, as opposed to being appalled by it, the kids were impressed with it and they loved it. And they came back and they had this whole new appreciation for food and especially fresh food. And, you know, no, mom, you can't get the... 30% pure ground beef. That stuff sucks. It's made with sawdust. We're going over there. We're getting the 90 10, you know, stuff like that. And it's just kind of fun. And I know some of the kids who went through the program, they're older now, they're in their 20s. And to this day, they, they cite it as an, an almost evolutionary part of their lives. You know, and it was something simple and it was cheap and we used to do it. And now we don't do it anymore. And I think it's sad because kids learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I had a friend who was complaining about the regular grocery store, about the prices. And <laughs> his claim was that the grocery store was trying to starve people to death by pricing the food too much. So I told him, well, you have to go to the Asian grocery store. This is back in San Francisco. And I told him, you go to the store, the prices are much better. The food is fresher. It's, it's great. Go there, you'll be happy. Well, he went there and he walks just inside the door. And this is where he sees a guy cutting up a fish. And the cuts are flying everywhere. And then next to him, another guy was cutting up a frog, you know, and chopping that up. And this friend of mine just, just about puked his guts right there. And he ran out of the store. <laughs> I love the Asian market. Seriously. Yeah. You want some fresh fish? That's where you go. You oh, yeah. want, I mean... I lived in Wisconsin. We would go out into the uh, the lakes and the streams and whatnot at night, bucket, flashlight, and um, sure. shovel. Yeah. And you just wander around. Ah, eyes. Whack! <laughs> Float up, scoop him up with the, uh, the shovel, and into the bucket he goes. Yep. Yep. We had used to have a place near here that did fish farming, and they'd bring in to the store, they have tanks of live fish. Mm -hmm. Right. You tell them what you want. And the first time I go into this place, there are these two, I'm going to guess 18-year-old girls who are before me. They say that they want two bass or four bass, whatever it was they wanted. 
and the guy walks into the back with a with a bucket, pulls out four, shows it to them, live flopping around, and I can see them turning as green as the fish. <laughs> Smacks it, guts it, cleans it, and gives it to them, and they are just turning so pale. Uh, they promised that they were going to cook their boyfriends a fish dinner, and they wanted to get fresh fish. Um, I think they regretted. Oh, that was going to be awesome fish. That would taste so much better. Well, they were farm raised, yeah. so they weren't quite as good as wild caught, but it was so fresh. Right. <laughs> no, totally though. I mean, it's still better than something that's been flash frozen and then, you know. Yeah. Well, the exception of salmon, I'll agree with that, because the flash frozen kills all the worms and other things that are the parasites on the uh, outer half inch or whatever it is of the meat. Um, Fair enough. But other than that, I mean, I can remember going to, to spending my teen years at scout camp and stuff, and I literally would probably do about 15 pounds of blueberries a week. Mm -hmm. um, because the chef really wasn't that good in the mess hall. Um, <laughs> catch your own trout or bass and cooking them up over the smoke, over the wood fire and stuff. You you couldn't beat it. Oh, that's, that's oh good yeah. Living. I learned I, I learned uh, you know you catch catch a nice large mouth bass, clean it, stuff it with some herbs, wrap it in uh, some foil and leaves, stick it under the uh, rocks, and then build a fire on top. <laughs> Yes. So actually, the last section I just finished writing in, in book two that I'm working on was a fresh fish. I think it was trout. Um, no, it was bass from the uh, lakes on um, Ganymede. Mm. Oh, wow. So like, they, they, were, they melted all the ice. They were able to terraform and actually have stuff with um, earth fish and things like that. So they were actually able to, at the point where they could now export it. Nice. Um, so because I, I write around a cruise and on cruise ships, because you're between ports and can't do everything, meals are a key factor in your day. Okay. If you've been in the Navy or anything like that, you, you know, the meal time is kind of like a highlight of your day, no matter how bad the food is. You know, well, when I did my, meal. when I did my shift on, uh, uh, crank duty, which is basically your your oper your forced uh, assignment to the galley for a while. I was one of the few people that was allowed the sharp knives. This <laughs> yeah, is a lot. Um, well, it it come about because the they go through and they kind of test you what you what you know what you do, um, and they gave each of us a sharp knife. I went to cut with it. I looked at it and it wasn't, a sh they gave us a knife. I looked at it. I looked at the, sh the um, mess, the chef, right? Um, and I looked at it, looked at him, looked back at it, grabbed the steel. And before he could stop me, I was sharpening it. And he right. just took a step back, like, wait a minute. <laughs> and then I went about uh, uh, doing the prep work that I had been assigned. And you're like, hold on a second. <laughs> You actually have a clue which end of a knife to use. Yeah. Yeah. And, and oh, then he stopped, the sat there and watched me. And I, you know, I wasn't super fast because we were underway and we're rocking a little bit. So I'm going a little bit slower, <laughs> but I'm actually perform. My cuts were relatively clean and, you know, slipped it into the bowls and whatnot. And he was like, and where did you learn to do that? <laughs> um, so it's, 
it's important. I mean, when it comes to, you know, just identifying with people, um, food is a way to make a connection. As Bill said, it is kind of sad that we haven't done that on a larger scale to help the world in general, because food really is one of those things that regardless of culture, regardless of um, other animosities, other prejudices, other issues that may be between any given group of people, food is one of those that we really can connect through. Even if it turns out that I cannot stand the particular dish that you are, there's there can be a bit of a joking. This, this happens between my wife uh, and myself because she we it's a running joke between us about her ethnic food. She's Puerto Rican. Um, so there are some dishes that I can't go. I, I can't do. She's got this uh, dish yep. that's uh, yep. olive oil, onions, vinegar, and uh, green bananas. I, I can't. Oh, Sounds good. I, I can't. Uh, I need that. <laughs> you, know, no, it, it just... you could be with an Aussie and have her try to get you to like Vegemite. I like Vegemite. I don't, dislike, I don't hate Vegemite. It's yeah. not my favorite thing, but I don't hate it. <laughs> When, Which was you know, real I, frustration for the guys that were trying, because uh, when you're, you know, you're getting your shell back on the ship, um, Vegemite is one of those tools they whip out because most people, most Americans have a really bad reaction to it. Yes, it's not that bad. Um, no, it's not. It's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, it's telling when you're talking about food. I live in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, and there's a thing that's very, it's common in the African-American culture that if you are a friend, if you are someone they truly like, then you get invited to the cookout. You get invited to share food with them. And it can take you years of getting to know people before they will invite you. Um, mm-hmm. When I was, I worked with a, Hadithi Zimbabwe comic company, is uh, owned by a black guy. And I worked with him for a year. I lived in a house with him for a year before he felt comfortable enough to invite me to one of his family cookouts. You know, so I mean, that's a big, important, that's, a, that's like a wedding. You know? Getting yeah. invited into the tribe like that is, is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back and, to- and it's the same, I had some Pakistani friends uh, that known me for a while, and then they invited me to what they call the Feast of Life. I don't know if you've ever had it, but it starts out with really sweet foods at one end, and it ends up with really sour foods at the other. So you have a little sampling of everything you're going to face in life. And it's, you know, it's bland, it's spicy, it's all this stuff. Like 20 little dishes and the idea isn't to get full and have a meal it's the idea is to experience the philosophical idea that each food represents an aspect of life that you will have to deal with and that was a, that's that fantastic. Was a really cool thing yeah have you guys have you guys ever uh gone to a ramadan celebration mm-hmm. oh yeah. yeah yes oh i can't remember the food that i ate i just remember that i liked everything it was awesome <laughs> it was all different foods i've never seen before never tasted before and it was all fabulous, and there was a yeah. lot of it. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get a you get a you get a lot of goat at a Ramadan. Oh, and I love goat. That so. depends on where you're having it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, our neighborhood has a lot of uh, Middle Eastern uh, Muslims, so when you when you have a meal with them, there's, there tends to be a lot of goat, a lot of olives, and a, a lot yeah, a lot of the type cheeses. Far Eastern ones tend not to have the goat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really? I remember the. 
uh, one gentleman. He's uh, Muslim, uh, very devout. You know, um, we were, um, I think it's Ramadan, um, but it is, essentially he's not allowed to eat from sunup to sundown. It's Ramadan. That's Ramadan. That's Ramadan. That's Ramadan. Yeah. And we had this emergency at, at my job. He, he was uh, one of the, en- the mechanical engineers. Great guy. I mean, personable, easy to talk to. Um, and we were up there waiting for something and just talking. We were talking food. And, you know, that, that's just one of the things we were able to identify across. You know, me having been in the Navy, having more experience with food, with food than others, you know, we, we got to conversing. And he admitted something that was rather shocking in the moment. Um, though I think I covered up my uh, surprise, um, he admitted that he had a bacon cheeseburger waiting for him when he got home. <laughs> um, are you sure it that he was a Muslim, not a Arab Christian? Very certain. Very yeah, certain. He admitted that how, and he admitted that he would never tell um, anyone, any of his family, anything like that. Um, that as much as as much of a you know sin and an evil thing it was, he's like there is just something about bacon. He only does it once a year. Well, yeah. If he's going to do it, that's the one time because that's more or less the, the period of repentance and remembrance. So, yep. Which, which is exactly what what he said. It was his one opportunity to kind of quote unquote get away with it. Yeah, I, you, I you, remember. I remember when I was uh, dating this Asian girl and Chinese. And so when we went out to eat dinner, I consistently insisted on going to this Chinese place and that Chinese place. And finally, one day she says, look, you know, tonight I just want a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I eat that at home. Why do I want to go out? And- <laughs> exactly. Nothing special to her. <laughs> I was at, um, in uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, O'Brien marries a Kyoto. Or the, I think that's her name. No. Anyway, he marries a Japanese woman. Hmm? Um, Ke- uh, Keiko. Keiko, thank you. Um, he marries her, and I think it was, it was, it struck me as a weird plot point that after they got married, she started making breakfast, and she made a traditional Japanese-style breakfast, and he was finally losing his mind because he wanted, like, you know, uh, shepherd's pie or something. Cause, gotcha. Right? Yeah. You know, so how did, how did this guy live with this woman, be on a space station with this woman. There's not like a lot of places to go up there. They obviously fell in love. I'm going to assume they not boots at least twice because that's a permissible in the Star Trek universe. And they got married and they did this whole thing. And then he discovers that she doesn't like bacon and eggs for breakfast. You know, and it, was, it just struck me as a strange plot point to come up with. Um, but they, they made it work and it was fun. And that's my lovely girlfriend. Many people know nothing about their spouse until well after they're married. Even if yeah. they live together. See, I got the, I think I got the advantage here of, since we're still have, still having pandemic fun in, in America. Um, my girlfriend and I have been sheltering in place since the second week of March. Uh, her company's just said stay home, and so she stays home and works, and I'm, I work from home. So I get to be with her all the time. And we've discovered a couple of things. One, that what I consider spicy and what she considers lethal are basically the same. And... Uh, <laughs> 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 and, I, I laugh because I've got a very good friend. Mm-hmm. The wife 
considers black pepper, table black pepper, as being too spicy. Mm. And he's into what I refer to as macho spicy, ghost peppers, whatever spice sauce, whatever it is, to the point where you can't taste the food anymore. It's got to be really spicy because it, it's this thing with him. And it's kind of like you make chili. It's like, okay, you make the chili, you take out a batch for her, then you add the spice, any flavoring for him. How, 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 do you, how do you maintain a relationship like that? I mean, really. I've been doing it for years now. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's easy, actually. I'm kind of like what uh, Eric said. You, you you set aside some of the food. Like when I make a chili, uh, we kind of have a happy medium chili that I make with some, some little habaneros and stuff like that. And that's spicy for her, and it's half flavorful for me, and we're good. But, I, but I, then I can always spice it up later more if I want. But I, I, I'm one of those people I like to cook the spices in because I like them to marinate into the flavors and the meat and vegetables and what have you. Um, so right. we kind of have a half, we, we have a happy medium. I make stuff that she can eat because I don't want her to die. And uh, I love her, you know, so not killing her is part of the deal. Um, <laughs> but then I also make food that, you know, is electric by my standards. And I have to be careful because some of the kids at Sunday school, they're like, Mr. Bill made chili. Mr. Bill made his boring chili. It's not Hormel boring, but it's, you know, boring by my standards. And I bring that to church potlucks and stuff like that. And so when they asked me for the recipe, I unfortunately sent them my recipe and not the recipe I use for church. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so I had to quickly reach out to the mom and go, okay, where it says habanero, take that off. <laughs> where it says slice the habanero into for the saute, take that off. Yeah. My wife is, is brilliant. She's Filipino. And she is brilliant with soups, but she cooks in the manner that she was trained. And that is you add things until it tastes right. Uh, in fact, she, a soup is just, well, this looks like it'll be working the soup and this looks like it'll work it in soup. And it's whatever happens to be handy. And then you put things together and you throw spices in until it tastes good. So she I'm a master of that kind of, of cooking. Soup. Yeah, that, she makes that, these huge batches of soup, and she takes them to work. And then the, her coworkers are saying, "Oh my God, this is the best soup I've ever had! Give me the recipe. recipe." And she says, "There is no recipe. I don't yeah. have a recipe." <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I've um, done that many times. I've I've gotten pretty good at doing uh, stir fries, and it's just it's just or fried rice whatever. or anything else. I. I I can do one day. I just decided, you know what? I'm going to make a pasta sauce, but I don't want to make a tomato sauce. So I ended up using an Amber Bach beer mm -hmm. and it was fantastic. Yeah. There's actually, a, there's actually a legitimate recipe for that using um, the beer and uh, onions. It was fantastic. And it was just oh, yeah. like something oh, I threw yeah. together. It, it, it's, you know, I watch food shows uh, a lot, uh, and I enjoy watching things like Beat Bobby Flay and whatnot. I'm like, my thing about those shows is there's no way in hell I could ever be Flay. Come on. <laughs> but I would love to see something kind of along the lines of Chopped, where they just kind of give you something, um, mm -hmm. but make Bobby do that. I want to see what it does to Bobby when you give him something just completely out of left field yeah when he has to make a spaghetti sauce out of ketchup you know yes <laughs> what, what, what would he do <laughs> my, my uh, girlfriend kim, she, <laughs> my girlfriend kim she tells the story all the time we were uh, 
spending the night. We were at her mother's house. We had spent the night there, and uh, for a lot of reasons. And we got up. We were, we were hungry. It was dinner time. We were hungry. And she goes, there, she's opening up the cabinets and stuff. And she goes, there's nothing here. There's nothing to eat. And I open up the cabinets, and within an hour, I had a pasta. I had the uh, shredded lettuce with um, uh, red bean sauce, and you know, did the whole thing. And we had a, this absolutely wonderful meal. And she's like, there's literally nothing in the house. And a half hour later, I'm looking at a gourmet meal. And it's like, it, it, it didn't teleport in. It was just random stuff in the kitchen. I just went, this flavor goes with that flavor. I can make that work. And, off I went. and that, that's what I've, uh, that's, that's what I learned, how I learned to cook was, it, it was less about some of the techniques more than it was learning to understand the flavors and how they combine. Mm -hmm. And that's also something I play with a little bit uh, in food when I bring it into the, uh, the fiction I write is, is to impress on that, that the flavor is more important. It's the act. The, um, when Jason goes to um, the Capitol to challenge for his own freedom, what, he's put up by his, the Lord that's sponsoring him. And the Lord comes looking for Jason and uh, his doc, Ed, and finds Jason in the kitchen cooking. And cooking well uh now there's backstory as to why jason is so good at cooking but he's like this is amazing and, and it's it's just i didn't know that my kitchen could produce this kind of food and i have professional chefs <laughs> and you've got the wrong chefs <laughs> okay. well that, that's because what jason was cooking him you know it was breakfast but it was not the sort of breakfast that he as Lord was used to, he was used to a, a hotty toddy, you know, exactly. And here he's got this more homely. I mean, Jason at the time was still a gladiator and a slave. So he's not going to be cooking something that is, you know, on the high end of the menu, but Lord Horn was just completely blown away by the food. Doesn't surprise me. It, yeah. I, I, for me, I, as much as I like to try exotic foods from faraway places, I still like pub food. I mean, I, I want a good plate of fish and chips, you know, mm -hmm. or a corned beef on rye. Mm -hmm. Somebody knows how to do that well. Oh my God, there's a few things in the world that are better than that. That's what I love about diners, drive-ins, and dives on Food Network. Is yeah. you, you get though he features those places where they just that's their focus and it's just something truly phenomenal and unique and when it comes to fiction that's also part of i think bringing that more realistic bit because if you if your reader has any familiarity with that sort of thing it really does give them an anchor point into the story that helps them identify with it relate to it definitely exactly Okay, pulling this back to sci-fi for a second, since we're going to have to wrap this up soon. Um, the best case of the discussion of food that I've ever come across was Robert Heinlein's The Unpleasant Profession of Jonathan Hod. And I've heard different pronunciations of that name, where he's a inspector, not a real person who's here inspecting the artwork that is humanity and Earth. And he is fascinated by the fact of how unlike any other species, we take food not just for nourishment, but also for pleasure, which is a concept that is 
truly amazing when you think about it because no other species, I mean, other species on the planet, okay, elephants will get themselves drunk deliberately on uh, overripe uh, fruit. Uh, monkeys the same way, but they don't necessarily go out of their way to mix and match and, and combine flavors in the same way that somehow right. we they're, they're looking for the sensation, not the fact that the way we might pour a snifter of brandy and with no intention of getting drunk, but to enjoy the flavor. Yes. And th this is truly an amazing concept of our culture of how much of our culture and our history, okay, ignoring the wars and the politics and stuff, everybody grew up with a grandma's kitchen or equivalent. Whether it was literally grandma or whatever that you grew up with, and this was the place you went for all sorts of special magic that grandma could make from those weird ingredients on the wall or in the pantry, right. whatever it was. Um, Whether it be um, grandma's blackberry pie or yeah. um, you know a shepherd's yeah, pie, if you were um, O'Brien or anything else of that nature. That's that feeling of home, that familiarity that uh, is so identifiable. Yeah, well, it, it tastes like love, you know. That, that's the yes. used to say when I was a kid. It tastes like love because grandma made it with love, and right. you know, getting that across in a in a book is sometimes hard. But I, I've discovered the shorthand of just saying it tastes like love. Everybody gets that; they understand that. There's a point in their life where they go, "I know that." No, you know, that's grandma's place or Bob's place, wherever the hell it was that they knew. And this and is as Bonnie pointed out earlier um, regarding the French and a, a meal that takes great periods of time because it's a, as much about enjoying the food and the flavors associated with the food as well as the company associated with the that meal mm -hmm. and this is what makes the book and the food relatable mm -hmm. yeah i agree yeah i uh i really liked reading robert j sawyer's books um yeah it's books of various themes often involving alien contact but uh in in almost every one of his stories there's a very detailed analysis about a meal that two people are having that they're sharing together and every single item of the food is described in, in intimate detail and for me this was uh this was a very unusual thing i hadn't read so much of that and i think it was his consistency in his writing about food and his stories that, that really drew me to him because I could relate, you know, mm -hmm. I can relate very well to it. Makes sense. I mean, some of the, the, the best science fiction TV or movies early on were things like To Serve Man or <laughs> Green. Um, I mean, some of these things were truly amazing at how this stuff came out and surprised you at the end. I mean, looking back at it, it wouldn't surprise us because we all know, and now there's actually a product called Soylent on the market. Um, but the idea that these things were there and it's a cookbook was the ultimate kind of reveal at the end going, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, the food and the story behind it just was so compelling that you didn't really need to know that it was aliens or spacecraft or stuff because it just really worked. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, and to some degree, I guess that's what we're all aspiring to, to get that kind of holy shit moment out of the people who are reading from us. 
Yes. It may not be you trying to scare them or shock them, but you want them to really like be so deep into it that it kind of goes, oh yeah, I get it. Yes, exactly. When you read a review of your book or something and you realize that someone got the real target of what you were aiming for, it, oh, oh, that's yeah. just it's so ha- that's great happiness, you know, when they, when they understood, when they related to what you were going for. Very much and, so. So I think it's time that we start wrapping this up. So Eric, let, let's let you um, give your goodbyes, how to find you, where to find your books, your website. Okay, uh, so you can find me, my blog at Momus News, and that's uh, humorous science fiction, flash fiction shorts. I'm uh, available on as E.A. Wickland on Goodreads and also uh, at Amazon. You can find my book, The Herolon Incident, and also just recently my short story, uh, Return to Arms, at Amazon. You can find uh, me at dcballard.com. Uh, that has links over to um, my available work, Chaos Fountain, as well as my blog, uh, where you can find uh, log entries and other things, including, as per this, uh, there is a little short flash fiction that has a, sal- a salsa recipe, my salsa <laughs> recipe in it. Awesome. Very cool. I have to look that up. You can find me at billmcsci-fi.com. I still love that. Yeah, you can find me at buildingthesci-fi.com. I think the coolest weird thing I now have up there is that you can get an electronic gift card. It's a Visa gift card, but it's stamped with Bill McSci-Fi logo on it. Then you can send it to your friends and family and everything. And it's the same as like any other gift card you buy online. It doesn't matter. So it's bank, backed by a bank. It's one of the strange things I did to just put it up there. And I, I found family and relatives who won't read my stuff because I terrify them. Um, they will support me by buying the gift card. So that's cool. It's something fun. You know? <laughs> I got a couple of bucks in the window. Always, but, uh, yeah. So BillMcSciFi.com. Go there, bring a credit card, have fun. Or buy a credit card and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> or buy a credit card and use it there and have fun. Yeah, there you go. You can do that. I'm Bonnie Milani. The website is really the creatively named BonnieMilani.com. I have a newsletter out if anybody's interested and. In- I look forward to the next podcast. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Thank you for joining, Bonnie. Thanks for being here, Bonnie. Take care, guys. And I'm Eric Klein. You can find me at ericlkline.com, available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, if you can still find them, et cetera. Thank you all. This was the Sci-Fi Roundtable podcast on food and science fiction and other ramblings. Thank you all. (laughs) 